Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. He's referring to Mount Sinai when Moses took the children of Israel to the mountain. He goes on to say, to a trumpet blast or a voice, uh, such a voice speaking words, that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses, and remember, Moses spoke to God as a man speaks to a friend face to face. Moses said, I am trembling with fear. And this is the part we've been looking at, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. And the author begins to explain what really happens when we gather to worship. When we come together, there is a spiritual reality and experience that we're having that many of us are unaware of. And because we're not aware of it, we're not fully able to enter into this, to leverage it for all that it's meant to be for us as believers. So he says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn who have, whose names have been written in heaven, who have come to God, you have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, which is an, a, a, a referral back to previously in this chapter where he talks about the great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us. And then he says this, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so what we want to look at this morning is the blood of Jesus, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, we looked a couple weeks ago at how that word mediator is an interesting word. It literally means go-between. We still use that terminology today, mediation. That's that's a, a person that stands between two parties that are at odds with each other. And Jesus is the mediator. Paul says he's the one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the go-between between God and man. But that word can also, it's also used to translate the idea, literally, of translation. Of somebody who is a translator between languages. Somebody that takes what one party speaks in one language and interprets it into the language of the person that's, that they're, trying, they're attempting to communicate to. So it's, he's a translator. And so we looked at how it's not a coincidence that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is God's thought wrapped in a word. A word is, a, is a, a, a thought wrapped in sound in order that you may transfer the thoughts of one individual into the mind of another individual. And Jesus is the communication device of heaven. He is God communicating to us. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So it's not just that what Jesus said, it's everything he did is God communicating to us. If you want to know who God is, how God is, what he acts like, how he thinks, look at Jesus' interaction with men. Look at Jesus' interaction with women. Look at how Jesus responded to people and you see the Father speaking. And so Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Now the word covenant that we translate in the New Testament covenant literally is a word that means to cut. 
It has the idea, it, it, it carries with it the connotation of the shedding of blood. A covenant is cut. We cut covenant. And it, uh, we in the Western culture are really at, a, at a, a deficiency when it comes to understanding covenant because we've kind of lost this ancient idea of covenant. Now all down through ancient history, through virtually every ancient culture, there were these idea, this, this concept of covenant. And it was really the glue, the cultural glue that held a society together. Now the one last remaining remnant we have of this idea of covenant is marriage. It's not a marriage contract, it's a marriage covenant. You see, a contract is based, uh, the, the whole reason for a contract is because we don't trust each other. We're going to enter into a covenant contract because I don't trust you to come through with your, your word and you don't trust me, so we're going to write up a contract so that if we don't carry out our word, then we can drag each other into court and force each other legally to, what we, to do what we should have done ethically in the first place. That's a contract. That is the total opposite of what a covenant is. A covenant is based on trust. A contract is based on mistrust. A covenant is based on trust, and the whole idea of a covenant is a covenant was a public ceremony that often had, there, there, were, there were ceremonial uh, things that they would do that were intentionally radical, intentionally out there, okay? And so the idea was that we're going to commit ourselves before God and before man, and covenant always had that, that two, two-sided idea to it, that we were making a promise before God, knowing that the God of heaven would hold us to it, but we're also making the commitment before man so that man can hold us accountable. And that idea still remains when we enter into the marriage ceremony. We come in, even there's, there's so much to the, the marriage ceremony that, that carries these ideas of ancient covenant. Matter of fact, the, the idea of the man's family sitting on one side of the sanctuary and the, the wife's family sitting on the other side of the sanctuary. That's not a contest to see which one wins, the biggest piece of cake at the party. What that is, it's the two pieces or two families being brought into one through covenant. And so they walk between the two families and it's that idea of walking between the pieces. That's alluded to in Ezekiel that is shown to us in, in Genesis, I want to say it's 16, where God makes a promise to Abraham and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you the father of many nations. Your, your children are going to be as vast as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Moses asked this question, Lord, how can I know this will be? How, how will this be? And rather than rebuke him for his lack of faith, what God says is, bring the sacrifice to me. And so Abram takes a, a sacrificial animal and he cuts it into four, it's the hind corners and the four corners, and they laid them out into four pieces. And this was an ancient ceremony that was not uncommon in the ancient world. But the next step would have been for the covenant participants they would, what was called walking between the pieces. And so they would have walked in a circular ape motion between those pieces of flesh of that, that animal torn limb from limb. Sometimes it was called the valley of death. They would walk between those pieces. And where, the, I know this is a little gross this morning. Uh, I'll tell it on the front end so we're not as close to dinner time. 
they, they would stand in the pool of blood as the, pool would con- the blood would congeal and, and pool up. They would stand in the pool of blood and that's where they would make the vows of the covenant. It was called walking between the pieces. And the idea was they would say this, so be it unto me as was done unto this animal if I do not hold up my end of the covenant. And then they would make the vows of the covenant because covenant always had vows entailing it. They would, they would commit to these certain aspects of the covenant. And in so doing, they would bind themselves together. The whole idea of covenant is that you're going to make two parties one. Whether it's two tribes, two countries, two families, or two individuals, you're gonna be, they're going to become one through this idea of covenant. And so they would enter into that covenant through these promises and they would say, so be it unto me if I do not fulfill my end of the covenant. They would call down curses on themselves and then they would enter into this covenant. And everybody that were the witnesses, because covenant ceremonies usually had witnesses, they would say it before these people to be held accountable before God and man that they would hold up their end. It was a very, very serious thing. You don't enter into covenant if you're not serious. Matter of fact, in the old covenant, in the old days, you remember when Abram, and he brought his wife Sarai to Egypt, and he told her, he said, he said, baby, do you love old lady, baby? She said, yes. He said, if you love old lady, baby, do me a favor. He said, when we get there, tell them you're my sister, because you're a good-looking woman. Now, she was an elderly lady, so she must have been a Yeah, she kept herself. He says, you're a good-looking woman. And so you tell them that you're my sister because they might want to kill me so they can have you. I want you to stop and think about that. In ancient culture, he understood they would rather be guilty of murder than adultery because they so valued the marriage covenant. They understood that violating that would bring down curses on them. It was a heavy thing. And so the king nuzzled up to old Sarah, or he was trying to win her favor, and he looked out the window one night, and there was Aby Baby kissing on his sister, and he said, that doesn't look like a brother and sister relationship. He called Abraham in, and he drove him out of the city that night because the Lord had come to him in a dream and said, he said, why would you touch this man's wife? And the king's like, hey, I'm innocent. And the Lord said, regardless, you touch her, I'm going to be all over you. I've given you mercy and showed up in a dream because you were innocent, but you better not touch this woman. It's a heavy, heavy thing. Covenant is a heavy, heavy thing. Almost sounded Italian, didn't I? It's a heavy, heavy thing. (laughs) So we need to understand that when Jesus cut covenant for us, He was the sacrificial lamb torn limb from limb. He was, it was his blood that was shed for us. And there was a foreshadowing of this thing with Abraham when God told him, lay the pieces of the animal out. Abraham shows up and the very next thing after he lays this animal out, what would have happened next is Abraham should have walked through the pieces. But Abraham knew better. He didn't do that. Matter of fact, he just stood there and the birds, the birds of prey, the, those birds began to try to pick at the animals and he would shoo them away. He was trying to protect it, but he knew he couldn't enter into it. Why? Because Abraham would have to say, Lord, so be unto me as was done unto these animals if I do not keep my commitment to you as my God. And Abraham didn't trust himself to step into the pieces. 
He needed somebody else to do it for him. And this verse tells us his name. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. If you remember that passage in Genesis, there was a, 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 a smoking lantern that, and a, a, it was a burning, a burning uh, I believe it was a burning torch and a smoking lantern that came through the pieces. It's reminiscent of that picture we see of Jesus in the, in the book of Re- the Revelation where Jesus' eyes are burning. His feet are like burnished bronze and he, he's the one who walked through the pieces for Abraham. God cut covenant with himself. The Father cut covenant with the Son. The Son cut covenant with the Father. Jesus' flesh was the sacrificial lamb and then you and I enter into the covenant because Jesus is the one who kept the commitment for us. That's the whole idea of this covenant. So when we talk about this this covenant, it's not us trusting ourselves to be able to keep the covenant. It's us trusting that Jesus kept it for us. And the irony is that you, until you come to a rest in the finished work of Christ, you will never be able to be consistently walking in righteousness in your behavior. Theologians have talked about two forms of righteousness. There's the legal position and your living condition. In other words, there's the paperwork in heaven. When I got saved, I was made holy. I'll never be more holy than I was at that moment. I'll never be less holy than I was at that moment. When I met Jesus as a teenage homeless alcoholic, I got radically saved and I was made righteous My legal position was I was in Christ. Now, my living condition was something else. The lady who led me to the Lord gave me money to buy a Bible and I bought a keg with it. My living condition was not up to my legal position. But as God began to reveal to me as a young believer, my position, my living condition began to stabilize. And that's true for all of us. We've got to have a revelation that our righteousness is in Christ. That in Christ, our our legal position paves the way for us to begin to walk it out in a living condition. And we go from glory to glory. As a matter of fact, there's a little verse in the book of Hebrews that, that bears out both of these tenses. It says, we who are righteous are being made perfect. Or we who are holy are being made perfect. We're holy, but we're being made holy. We're perfectly righteous in his sight, but we're being perfected as a process. And so there's the, both of these tenses. But until we enter into the finished work that I am holy and that I hide under the shed blood of Jesus, I will never have the consistency. Why? Because if I'm not confident of my standing with God, of my being welcomed into the throne of grace, I cut myself off from the grace that is necessary for me to walk it out day to day. You see, if the enemy can keep you outside of the throne room, if he can condemn you on your way to the presence of God, he accuses the brethren before the throne day and night. It's not that the enemy has access, it's that you're access to the throne. As you're on your way to the throne, the enemy begins to condemn you. And if you buy into that, and the only reason you buy into condemnation is when you are resting on your own righteousness as opposed to his. Condemnation comes on the ground of self 
righteousness. So when you're doing good, you're feeling good, and when you're doing bad, you're feeling bad. I remember when I first got saved, I felt like I had to get saved every morning. What I didn't realize, because I didn't know about coffee back then. I just was, you know, I'd never drank coffee. But I didn't realize, I, you know, a couple of cups of coffee would have got me sanctified again, you know. I, I didn't, I wasn't, conf, I wasn't uh, confident in my standing with Jesus because I was trusting in my own righteousness. And so I needed to enter into that and understand the righteousness of Christ. So last week we tried to lay this foundation for the blood of Jesus. In order for us to understand the value, in order for us to appreciate, which is the idea of valuing, in order for us to appreciate the value of the blood of Jesus, we need to understand why God the Father appreciates or values the blood of Jesus. When we understand how God views the blood, the very next thing is we begin to get a revelation about how we can receive the blood. And then and only then can we begin to use it against the enemy. You see, the blood of Jesus has an application towards heaven and God. It has an application towards our own heart on earth. And it has an application towards the enemy. It is a weapon of warfare that we use against the enemy. There is, there is a sense in which we wield the blood of Jesus as a weapon against the enemy. It's in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, the love not their life, and to the death. The first stage of overcoming him is the blood of the Lamb. But you will never be able to use it against the enemy until you can use it in your own heart. And you'll never be able to use it in your own heart until you understand why the Father values it. Does that make sense? So there's a progression. Your theology will lead to your identity and your identity will lead you to be successful in warfare. But if you don't realize how the blood of Jesus gives you relationship, a secure relationship with the Father, he welcomes you in based on the finished work of Christ. If you don't understand that, it'll never give you rest in your own heart. Now, last week we talked about this and I want to make sure that we walk away understanding this. There were two dilemmas that we had away from God. There were two dilemmas that only covenant can settle. Those two dilemmas were a divine dilemma and a human dilemma. It was two forms of guilt. There was legal guilt, which made us guilty before God, and the soul that sinneth shall surely die. That's a problem. We had legal guilt that made us guilty before God and therefore put us outside the holy place, cut us off from supply, no relationship with God. That was legal guilt. The blood of Jesus answers on our behalf for legal guilt. It settles that and it rends the temple veil so that we can go in boldly before the throne of grace and find grace in our time of need. All of a sudden now we have access to what we need. But it's because of the blood of Jesus but there, it wasn't just legal guilt because there are those of you sitting here this morning that understand how the blood of Jesus settles legal guilt, but you still struggle with a different type of guilt and that is psychological guilt. You know heaven is your destination, but you can't shake it at your guilt as an identity on your way to heaven. And the enemy keeps you out of being who you are really called to be, out of shame and guilt. 
And so we need to understand how to apply the blood of Jesus to our own hearts. So that's why last week we went over this ground. The blood of Jesus, and I just want to go through this very quickly. I want us to understand this and make sure we're rooted and established in this thing. Now this passage here talks about the sprinkled blood, which speaks a better word than Abel. The sprinkled blood. It's an interesting little phrase. But it's not unique to this passage. You see this phrase throughout Scripture, the sprinkled blood. It's all through the Old Testament. It was the way that things were sanctified. We see it in the New Testament. Peter talks about the sprinkled blood. The book of Hebrews talks about it several times. Matter of fact, it says there that the sprinkled blood is how things are sanctified, alluding to the Old Testament. You see, there's a difference between the shedding of blood and the sprinkling of blood. The shedding of blood was something that God did in Christ. Jesus shed his blood as the God-man on our behalf. The shedding of blood was how our redemption was secured. The atonement was secured. Jesus shed his blood so that he could win salvation for us. So the shedding of blood is how that, that righteous possibility, that possibility of righteousness was secured. The sprinkling of blood is how it's applied, okay? So you can be saved but fail to live in the fullness of your salvation because you don't know how to apply the blood of Jesus in your day-to-day failures. So we need to understand, this passage is talking about the sprinkled blood. I want to say it's chapter 10 in Hebrews. It talks about, uh, we need to have our heart, no, it's chapter 9. We need to have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse our hearts of a guilty conscience. You see, a guilty conscience will keep you outside of God's presence. A guilty conscience will keep you from entering in. The answer to guilt and to shame, and there is a difference between guilt and shame. The answer to both guilt and shame is understanding the value of the blood. When you understand how the blood works, you can begin to use the sprinkled blood to apply it to your own heart. You can, and that brings you right into warfare where you can begin to use it against the enemy. But if you, you will never be able to successfully use the blood of Jesus against the enemy until you can first use it in your own heart to cleanse yourself of guilty conscience. Because what the enemy leverages in warfare is your guilt and shame. The primary weapon of the enemy is guilt and shame. Now let's define the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is feeling bad about something you did. Shame, on the other hand is feeling bad about who you are. Shame is an identity issue. See, the guilt, we, we feel like we failed. In shame, we feel like a failure. And the enemy is a master at manipulating guilt to cause us to enter into shame. And when he can create that as an identity, when we become, we feel enveloped by shame, our identity is we're this guilty person, this shameful person, this, 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 uh, we're damaged goods. It not only affects our relationship with other people, and that's a huge deal. Because if you're feeling shame, it is going to affect your ability to come into relationships completely. 
This morning in the office, Laura was sharing with me some interesting stuff. She always sees the most interesting stuff in the Word. And she was throwing out some stuff. And she was, she was saying how in Genesis chapter 3 and going into chapter 4, it says that the, the, uh, the serpent was crafty. And she said, Pastor, how could he be crafty if everything was made good? And as any wise pastor would say, I said, I have no idea. It's a good question. I'll have to chase that one down. In, in the uh, Hebrew, there's a, there's a play on words there. It's, it says, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And the very next phrase is, but the serpent was more crafty. He was crafty. In the Greek, it's arom and arom. It's A-R-O-M and A-R-U-M. Now, to be honest, I don't remember which one goes with which one. But it's a play on words that Moses used to juxtapose this thing of craftiness versus nakedness. In other words, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide. What you see, and you saw it all, is what you get. They weren't ashamed. They had no, they had no reason to feel ashamed. They were walking around in their birthday suits just feeling, feeling good about themselves. They weren't worried, do I have love handles? Does this lack of clothes make me look fat? You know, and all that. They don't, they don't, they don't worry about it. They were unashamed. But the enemy, he was at Rome. He was, he was crafty. The idea is that they were open, they were naked, they were unashamed, nothing to hide, but he had things going on in the background that he was hiding. It's the, the opposite of unashamed is shame that causes us to hide things. And so when we come into a relationship, we only bring a part of us because we're living in this identity of shame. There's all this other garbage that we've identified with that we can't bring to the relationship because we're embarrassed about it. Now I'm here to tell you that doesn't just affect your human relationships and we've all dealt with that. There is not a person in this room that hasn't struggled with shame to varying degrees depending on the way we were raised and the things that have happened to us and so forth. But that also deeply affects our relationship with God and that is the ultimate goal of the enemy. You see, God works this way. A revelation of who he is and how the blood is appreciated by him, which leads us to a revelation of who we are and how we can apply the blood to us, and then we can begin to use it against the enemy. The enemy works in, in reverse. He tries to convince you other, uh, convince you about who you really are in his, his narrative so that he can begin to shape your theology. Often the enemy will reach through your identity to try to shape your theology. That's why in Hebrews chapter 6 when it says, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, that you may not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. When someone comes up and encourages you, they can see you're in the mully grubs, so they come up and they encourage you. What are they usually telling you? They're talking good, uh, they're addressing your identity. Because if they're not addressing your identity, they're just saying, hey, it's going to be a good day, better day tomorrow. You're like, yeah, right. Because it's all connected to your identity. What they do is they speak to your identity and begin to encourage you and tell you, hey, man, you're doing great in life. They begin to encourage who you are. And as they do, it lifts you up out of that vulnerability to temptation. 
The, the threshold of temptation is a, a twisting of our identity. When we're discouraged, we're hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In other words, when you're discouraged, you're very vulnerable to temptation. So we've got to remain encouraged. So the enemy works this way, God works this way. So in order for us to cooperate with God, we have to understand, therefore, that's why we looked at what we did last week, Why is the blood valuable to God? And then it becomes valuable to us. And it establishes us in who we are. So, why is the blood of Jesus valuable to God? God had a dream. He wanted, he had his only begotten, he wanted many begottens. So he made Adam and Eve in his image. That image was potential. That making was a process. Adam and Eve were not the finished product. So through a series of choices and temptation, God put a tree in the middle of the garden. He didn't put it off to the edge with razor wire and pit bulls and angels with AK-47s. Don't get by it. No, he put it right in the middle. Why? Because he was confronting their will with choice because God is an empowering leader. And he was calling them higher. And through choice, the right choices, we would grow and the, the nature and character of God within us would be manifest. We would go from glory to glory. We would grow into him who is the head. We failed, Adam and Eve got it off track, so God said, I'm going to have to do this myself. Jesus put on an earth suit, came down as a baby, and he went through the process of fulfilling all of righteousness. That's why he said to John the Baptist, his cousin, I must fulfill all of righteousness. you got to baptize me. This is required. Again, we talked last week, it wouldn't have been good enough for Jesus to die as a little baby. That's why God didn't allow Herod to kill Jesus as an infant. It wasn't good enough that we have an innocent sacrifice, we needed a perfected sacrifice. And Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 5 said Jesus was perfected by the things that he suffered. Hebrews chapter 2 at the end of the passage says he suffered when he was tempted. Jesus was on the same developmental plan that Adam and Eve were on and the same one you and I are on. What is that developmental plan? God allows us to have free will and to make choices. And when we make the right choices, we grow in character. And when we make the wrong ones, there's consequences. But God is calling us higher. He's calling the potential of his nature out of us so that we can go from glory to glory. How does he do that? By securing the one man, Jesus Christ. It says that once made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. God had to have a perfected life. Not just an innocent life. His innocent life could have given given answer for the sins of your past, but it wouldn't have empowered your future. Let me say it again. His innocence may have taken care of your past sin, but it wouldn't empower you to live righteous in the future. So Jesus faced every temptation. He wasn't just innocent and never faced a temptation. Innocence is nothing to brag about. It's just never been tempted. Perfection, on the other hand, has been confronted and it it endures the suffering. It says, regardless of the cost, regardless of the pain, regardless of what I have to put up with that I don't want to and have to do without that I don't want to do without, I'm going to stay the course and I'm going to become righteous. And then, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. And so when we talk about the blood of Jesus, it was that perfect life that was in the bowl of blood that Jesus 
presented to the Father in Hebrews 9 as the high priest of our faith. He entered the most holy place, not the one that is a mere copy on earth, but the, the literal throne room of God. He entered with his own life in his hands. The life is in the blood, and the life that was in Jesus' blood was a life that had answered to every requirement that God ever had for man. And he presented it to God, and God said, it's finished. I'm satisfied. I have everything I need from a man. And with that one life secured, he began to reach in and redeem other men and women. And when we understand why God the Father values the blood, because it answers on our behalf, every righteous requirement that God has for man was answered in the blood of Christ. So when, the, that, when we understand that, that God's value of the blood, that takes us now to the second step. Now I can value the blood. And when the enemy comes to condemn me, or I have a bad day, or I, I do something I shouldn't have done, I'm not, I'm not excusing sin. I'm just saying I'm not going to stay in the penalty box. I'm not going to make a, an event of failure a lifestyle of failure. I'm not going to make it a, 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 a time where I live in there. I'm going to get out of that. How? By saying my righteousness is in the blood. When I first began to understand this as a young man, I used to go before the Lord and I would say, God, I know that the one requirement you have of me to enter into your holy presence is a perfect life. And Lord, I don't have it in and of myself. But what I do have is I have it in Christ. And I would picture myself with that bowl of blood and I would come before the throne and I'd say, God, I give you a perfect life. And I would picture the Father taking it and say, come in and worship I had to do those mental gymnastics. I had to rewire my brain. And in that way, I was sprinkling my heart with the blood to cleanse myself of a guilty conscience because I wasn't approaching God based on my own righteousness or lack thereof. I was approaching it based on the finished work of Christ, the perfected life. And once I did that, I began to find rest. All of a sudden, I had access. I could enter in and out of his presence. I could live there. I didn't have to, I didn't have to feel like, okay, time in the penalty box. This weird theology that I had that, oh, I, you know, I got, mad at, I got mad at someone and yelled at him when I was in traffic, and so now I've got to spend two days outside the presence. No use trying to pray. God's mad. You know, a couple days, he's so busy, he'll forget, you know, then I can go back in. But just this thing that's, just saying, God, by my behavior, I have proven once again what my flesh is capable of. But I don't approach you based on my righteousness. Lord, I ask your forgiveness. I plead the blood. I sprinkle the blood on my heart. And I'm coming into your presence because I have a perfect life with which I can approach you. So that's the value of the blood. And if we don't, if we don't understand why God values it, we won't value it. We, we, we can understand the shed blood, but we need to understand how to use the sprinkled blood. The sprinkled blood is how you apply it. Matter of fact, there are verses, some translations, rather than translating certain passages, the, the sprinkling of blood, they literally translate it, the applying of blood. That's not a bad, it, it's getting to the intention, but they, they kind of bend the, the wording to get there. And I kind of like the wording, the sprinkling of blood. What it insinuates is it only takes a little. One drop of Jesus' blood can strip the enemy of his power. The sprinkled blood. 
So once we understand the sprinkled blood cleanses our heart of a guilty conscience, then we can begin to use it against the enemy, the blood of Jesus. I love to torment the tormentor. The first time I ever cast a demon out of anybody was a little three-year-old kid. Seriously. I was like 21 years old working in this Christian daycare, and I had 33-year-old kids in a room all by myself. Now, that would be illegal today, okay? That was many years ago, and I don't know if it was illegal. I was just a man under authority. But I was, I was teaching these kids, and I was telling them the story about the little boy who never sinned. And of course, it was about Jesus. And I talked, and I'd have them, because it, you know, it was chaos in there, this little room of 30 kids. So I'd have them all lined up against the wall in this daycare. And I was talking about the little boy who never sinned. And, oh, he always obeyed his mommy and always obeyed his daycare worker. And he, uh, you know, and he was always nice. And then, da 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 and, and, uh, and then I, but then they crucified him, and I'd pull a kid out, and I'd lay him down, and, you know, and they'd all be wide-eyed, and, you know, just dramatic, you know. But there was this one little cantankerous fella, just a little pipsqueak of a kid. Every time I said the name Jesus, he would stick his fingers in his ears and go. Now, I wasn't really being discerning, to be honest with you. I mean, that should have been a sign. But I, it just, it just kind of struck me. And he was so cantankerous, I, you know, that's just kind of like how he always was. But he was, he'd stick his finger in his ear every time I say the name Jesus. So I'm, just, I'm in the flow. I'm just playing around with these kids, jumping around, telling the story. So I, as, I'm, as I'm crucifying one kid on the floor, I reach over to the kid and I said, in Jesus' name, put my hand on his head. All of a sudden, his eyes roll back in his head and he starts swallowing his tongue. I'm like, I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> so I did what any man of God would do. Brother Caldwell, he was the director. Brother Caldwell, he was the pastor of the, that was overseeing the daycare. Brother Caldwell, come in here. He comes in, I said, hey, I don't even remember the little boy's name today. But I said, he, you know, I told him what happened. Oh, really? He said, well, he took him to his office and came back a little, I think it's gone. He said, we prayed over him, there's nothing. That was my first experience. So then I went to work for Teen Challenge and had a whole lot more. Oh, my goodness. We had this one guy. He was a brown belt in karate. Remember, there were, when they bought the facility that Teen Challenge now owns, it was full of bats. This bat's flying through the air. He jumps up in the air and kicks it out of the air and kills it with his foot. He was a bad dude. And he was demonized big time. He would go into this lotus pose in the middle of the night. I was with Miss Sandra. You guys remember Sandra Collier? Many of you remember Sandra. Miss Sandra, her and, her and Quimby were on staff with us for a number of years. Sandra knew who she was in Jesus. Me, not so much. So I would just kind of hide under Sandra's little wing, you know. <laughs> we're down in the basement of this huge, huge, this, the building's scary anyway at night, you know. We're down there, and this guy, he's sitting there, and all of a sudden he goes like this, in his lotus pose, and he starts, I'm serious, you, you, you can believe me or not believe me, but he began to physically grow before our eyes and get bigger. I'm like, Brother Caldwell. <laughs> he was in Missouri. I was in Iowa. I just looked at Sandra, and Sandra just looked at that man and said, you stop that in Jesus' name. He just shrunk back down. Okay, there wasn't the sound. Okay, I, <laughs> that was me. But he did. Just kind of became normal again. 
And then she looked at me and she said, Dave Olson, you just need to know your authority in Jesus. And I was like, yeah, I do. She said, I'm going to bed now. I'm like, no, no. I'm going to stay up all night with this guy. Uh, I have some stories, I'm telling you. But I learned as we began to you know, bring people through deliverance, the power of the blood of Jesus. You know, the enemy understands the blood of Jesus. The enemy is not, uh, he, he, he doesn't need any enlightenment on the power of the blood because it strips him of his power. Because his power is guilt and shame. It's lies to try to identify us and get us outside of God's presence where we'll be vulnerable. But when we understand the power of the blood, we can wield it as a weapon. I remember back in those days, the, early, the late 80s, there was this song by Wayne Watson. Everybody remember Wayne Watson? There's a few of us. Boy, that makes us feel old, doesn't it? Wayne Watson. It, it went something like this. Hear us, O spirits of darkness, so that you know where we stand. We are his servants purchased by blood, uh, purchased with scars, bought by the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb. There's times I would sing that over people. I would, I would quote these verses about the blood and just watch the enemy be tormented. As he, this, this, this enemy who once tormented people, I'd watch him be tormented on his way out. The blood of Jesus that we carry as a weapon of warfare, the enemy has to bow before it. It breaks every covenant. I'm talking about, you know, any, any kind of negative covenant that the enemy, people have gotten into. Uh, you know, and I've prayed with people who have entered into blood covenants and all kinds of witchcraft and Satanism and stuff. And their parents have dedicated him to the devil, a child. And they're so demonized and tormented. But I'm telling you, the blood of Jesus can set anybody free. And the enemy has to let go because of the blood of Jesus. We need to understand how to use the blood. And the way you use the blood against the enemy is because you understand how to use it in your own heart because you understand how God values the blood. This passage says that it speaks a better word than Abel. It's referring, of course, to the first few chapters of the book of Genesis where Adam and Eve's two boys are at odds with each other, Cain and Abel. And Abel brings a sacrifice to the Lord, a blood sacrifice that is acceptable to the Lord and Cain brings one that is unacceptable to the Lord. Now there's been, there's been uh, you know, speculation on why and we don't need to get into that, but the fact is Cain got jealous of Abel and murdered his brother. And the Lord came to Cain and said, where is your brother Abel? And Cain gets mouthy with the Lord. Not a good idea. And he said, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. The ground that opened its mouth and received your brother's blood from your hand will now resist you. And it will no longer bring forth fruit. Saying, you, you're, as a farmer, it will no longer cooperate with you because of the violation. And your brother's blood now cries to me from the ground. It's a fascinating verse. 
Now be careful that you don't just relegate everything to poetic language. Said your brother's, the blood, the voice of your brother's blood cries to me. The word voice, it means sound. But literally there was a sound coming from that blood that was crying for justice before God. It was crying out for the justice of God against his brother because his life had been shed and the life was still in that blood, in the ground, crying out. And the ground literally became cursed. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. I want to close with one verse. What is the word that the blood of Jesus speaks on our behalf? I want to read you a fascinating verse, or a couple of verses here. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deserve, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful, listen to this, and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He equates confession with walking in the light. In other words, walking in the light is where there's nothing hidden. Walking in darkness is where we have things hidden. We hide things because of our shame. And what God calls us out of darkness into the light where we begin to confess and we own those things. We, we lay them at his feet so that he can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it says, when we confess, he is faithful and just. Now I understand the faithfulness of God in forgiving my sins. I've been on the receiving end of that for 35, 36 years now. God is so faithful to forgive us of our sins. But years ago, I saw that other little word in there, and it really struck me. I thought, Lord, how can your justice forgive me? I don't know if you've ever heard preachers say, I don't ask for justice. Man, it's, we, we act as though the blood of Jesus excuses us from the justice of God. It's as if the, ju the justice of God, we escaped justice through the blood. But this verse tells us, no, our forgiveness is an exercise of justice, not an escape from it. How can that be? It's because the blood of Jesus turned the tables. The justice of God that was once our prosecuting attorney and, and called us guilty, now, through confession, and when we understand the value of the blood, he became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. We come under that, and now the very justice before which we once trembled, and we, we stood in danger of hellfire because of the justice of God, that same justice now works on our behalf and is no longer the prosecutor, but is the defense attorney. The justice of God works on our behalf because it appeals to the, the finished work of Christ. In Christ, I can, it's like double jeopardy. I cannot be judged for my sin because he already was. And when I entered into that, I am made righteous. And so it's justice that forgives me. 
It's justice when I confess. It's justice that makes me clean and purifies me from all unrighteousness. And when I understand that, I literally pull the rug out from underneath the enemy. He has no ground anymore. He can't accuse me anymore because all I have to do is confess and the justice of God that was once against me now defends me. And it it disarms the enemy of his, his accusation. It's the sprinkled blood that gives a better word than Abel. Abel's blood was a cry for justice, but it was justice and and it was the guilt of Cain. Jesus' blood does cry for justice. We see it right in this verse. It's crying for justice, but it's justice on our behalf that we are made righteous and we cannot be visited with judgment for our sin because he already took the brunt of that at Calvary. And so the word of Jesus is forgiveness as justice. The word of Abel was vengeance as justice. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. It's never lost its voice. It still cries out on our behalf. It's an awesome thing. Father, we thank you, God, for your provision for our freedom. Lord, that you don't just forgive us, but you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're not just forgiven but struggling. We're made free. We're made whole. We can bring forth righteous acts. We can live the life because of your life in us. We thank you for that, Lord. And Father, I pray that you'd give a a revelation to every one of us of the power of your blood. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.